0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick and ugh, out of bra shopping. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15.
2: Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy beach treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Welcome to Pantsy of Politics, where a woman from the right and a woman from the left accessorize the news with a fresh perspective. This is Sarah Holland from the left and Beth Silvers from the right, and we are so excited to be joined today by Kristen Soltis Anderson.
3: So, Kristen is a pollster and author of The Selfie Vote, Where Millennials Are Leading America and How Republicans Keep Up. She is the co-founder of Echelon Insights and a columnist for The Washington Examiner. She has been named one of Time Magazine's 30 Under 30 Changing the World, Mary Claire's New Guard of 50 Rising Female Leaders, one of campaign and elections The Influencers 50. And she's frequently on Meet the Press and Morning Joe and a number of other shows, and I have to say, Kristen, that I saw start, started seeing you on the morning shows this summer and just got so excited um, to see a young Republican woman who is center right and speaking for the values that I hold. Also excited to hear you on your podcast, The Polsters. And just thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Of course. Thank you for having me.
3: Well, so we will start in the pearls today by just diving into the polls. Number of polls out of Iowa showing Trump solidly in the lead and would love to hear your take on what's happening in Iowa and New Hampshire right now, Kristen.
0: So in Iowa, the big question is whether or not Donald Trump will change the definition of who a caucus goer is. So typically, um, you know, a likely caucus goer in Iowa is usually somebody who's you know, pretty conservative, you know, usually fairly socially conservative, religious, kind of an activist in the party or, you know, pretty engaged, you know, pays attention to the news a lot. Donald Trump does not actually do as well with that definition of voter. That type of voter actually goes to Ted Cruz in Iowa. Where Donald Trump does really well is with a sort of like working class, blue collar voter who doesn't necessarily identify as a Tea Party person, who isn't necessarily you know, strongly religious, and for the longest time has not really found a Republican candidate who has felt they represent their values in terms of, of sort of this more populist strain of the party. So when you look at the polls, Ted Cruz does really well among very conservatives and among people who have a record of participating in primary contests and things like that. Donald Trump does well among unlikely voters, but that doesn't mean that they won't vote this time. It's very hard to change people's behavior. Um, but but Donald Trump may just be that X factor, that different thing that completely shifts uh, who turns out in these caucuses. So this is why you're seeing different polls give really different stories. You see some polls that show Donald Trump way ahead in Iowa. Um, And those are typically polls that have a very generous definition of who a caucus goer is. For instance, you've got polls that'll show, you know, they'll only talk to 200 Republicans in Iowa and they'll take anyone who says that they're a Republican and they'll count them as a potential caucus goer. And we know that only about a, a quarter of Republicans in Iowa actually show up to caucus. So if you're talking to 100 or 200, you know, only a quarter of those are really caucus goers. Cruz does well among the people we know caucus. So if you have a narrower screen, if you ask people how how likely they are to vote, if you look at past voting history, Cruz does better. So that's kind of the big mystery that's happening in Iowa. In well, New I... Hampshire, it's sort of the other way around. In New Hampshire, <laughs> Donald Trump does very well uh, if a lot of independents don't turn out in the Republican primary. If independents in Iowa look a lot different than independents in New Hampshire. So Trump does very well if independents in Iowa turn out for him. But if independents are not in New Hampshire show up, then folks like John Kasich tend to do a lot better.
2: Well, I have a quick question. When you say, you know, sort of what will happen if this happens, have there been any past campaigns that have sort of depended heavily on unlikely voters? Was Barack Obama depending a lot on those type turns out among people who don't usually turn out?
0: So that's a great example. And in a way, this is sort of a bizarro universe version of the Barack Obama strategy on the Republican side. You know, we typically think of, say, African-American voters, younger voters as being part of the Democratic constituency. But the challenge is that they don't usually turn out in midterm elections or in primaries. And Barack Obama was really able to turn that dynamic on its head, which is how he was able to beat Hillary Clinton in 2008. So this time around, it's Donald Trump who may be changing the game and pulling in voters who have not felt uh, a connection to the process and re- sort of reshaping the game in, in Iowa. The, the difference is that Barack Obama was able to sort of continue to build upon that and continue that with infrastructure in states beyond Iowa and New Hampshire that really kind of kept Hillary Clinton on our heels, you know, and, and made him ultimately successful in states that had weird rules with delegates where you would get caucuses, have caucuses instead of primaries. And, you know, Barack Obama was sort of built for the long haul. On the Republican side, the buzz is that Donald Trump may not have that, that he may have just at this point been coasting on – a really fabulous gift from the mainstream media in terms of all of this media attention uh-huh. and excitement around him. Um, but that it's Ted Cruz and, and perhaps some of these other candidates, but mostly Cruz, who's built an organization that's kind of built to last. And, you know, is has been figuring out how am I going to win delegates in Guam? You know, just weird <laughs> things like that, where how am I going to show up at this convention in Cleveland and have the delegates to win? Cruz may be better positioned on that front than Trump is.
3: Interesting. Well, it seems like polls have been part of the gas in Trump's tank. You know, I read where David Oxelrod said that Trump caresses his poll results. I thought that was such a great phrase. (laughs) So I wonder how you, as someone in this industry, sort of feel about the way polling has been used and to some extent has shaped this race.
0: It's driving me a little bit crazy, I have to tell you. So there's a a quote that I was going to put in my Twitter bio uh, from a week ago where Donald Trump said, I'm a little bit obsessed with polls. (laughs) 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 Oh, my God, I'm going to put this on a poster and hang it in my office, except it'll depress me a lot. So in a weird way, this is sort of a, a tail wagging the dog kind of situation. You know, Donald Trump back in June was only at nine or 10 percent in the polls. And there are a million clips of me out there on TV saying Donald Trump's not going to be a factor, because back at that point, he was only at nine or 10 percent in the real clear politics polling average. And the only reason that looked impressive was that you had 17 people in the field splitting the field every which way. So 10 percent allowed you to be first place. So I said, no, 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 no. This isn't a big deal. But of course, the media said, oh my gosh, Trump sits at the front of the polls. This is crazy. Let's talk about it nonstop. Let's give him this microphone. Let's put the spotlight on him. And I think it was Nate Silver who did this really great analysis where there is a a very freakishly strong correlation between the amount of media coverage Donald Trump gets and his standing in the national polls. Oh, wow. um, so so the reason why Donald Trump always talks about his polls is it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. When he talks about how high he is in the polls, it gives the media more justification to talk about him more because they can say, well, look, he legitimately is the front runner. We are allowed to talk about him this much we're supposed to talk about him this much. And then of course it just sort of feeds on itself. And also Donald Trump's brand is that he's a winner. His appeal is not that he is a pure conservative. It's not that he's a good Republican. It's not that he represents the tea party. His appeal is that he's strong and that he's a winner. And every time a poll comes out showing Donald Trump in the lead, it only reinforces this idea that Donald Trump is strong and he's a winner. So, in a weird way, if Donald Trump doesn't win Iowa, there's a theory that this will sort of let the, the gas out of the tank, right? Mm-hmm. That suddenly it will pop the balloon. Donald Trump will be vulnerable. He's not the winner. He says he is. And that may sort of put an end to his momentum, making it harder for him to roll on into states like South Carolina or the the March 1st SEC primary days where he's expected to uh, face a lot of uh, opposition in the face of Ted Cruz, who's supposed to do real well there.
2: Well, and listen, he has to talk about his polls. What else is he gonna talk about? Policy? Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because media- his, his polls are the biggest and the hugest and the most fabulous thing you've ever seen, of course. So they're right on message.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we keep hearing people in the media say he's like got this Teflon. I'm like, I think that's you guys I think Teflon. But so um So let's talk about the Democrats for a second. Do you see the same thing in terms of Sanders and this turnout issue?
0: So Sanders is facing a sort of a different situation because Sanders has also got a lot of excitement on his side, a lot of grassroots support which you can gauge in part not just by the people showing up to his rally but the number of grassroots donations he's gotten i mean folks on the right need to be paying attention to bernie sanders not just because he's giving hillary clinton a run for her money and that sort of makes us us chuckle on on the inside but but because he's tapping into this populism that in many ways is is not so different from the populism um, and sort of the blue collar frustration that Donald Trump is tapping into. You know, we think of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders as being on two opposite ends of a spectrum. But really, political ideology is not best thought of as a right-left right left spectrum. It's, it's got more dimensions than that. And in a weird way, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are not as far apart as perhaps Bernie Sanders would like to think right, they, they are. They're both outsiders. That's what they've they're, got going They're for both outsiders. They're both outsiders who want to sort of really disrupt the system. Bernie Sanders challenge is that he is trying to recreate the Obama coalition in part, but he's missing a few pieces of that puzzle. So Bernie Sanders is doing very well among young people, which was a piece of the Obama coalition, and he's doing very well among the very liberal, which was also a piece of Obama's coalition where he struggles is among sort of, uh, you know, African-American voters, um, Latino voters. This was a big piece of Obama's coalition that has not been flocking to Bernie Sanders. He sort of struggled early on to win over uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, Hillary Clinton has also had some struggles on that front, but, but generally remains endorsed by or supported by more leaders in the African-American community. Now, where there is a piece of the Democratic coalition that I think may split in a fascinating way and that may wind up determining uh, who really thrives in Iowa and New Hampshire is the difference between union members and union leaders. Mm. So there's this cool split where if you look at which unions have endorsed which candidates, if it's a union where the members of the union get to weigh in and vote and have a say on who their union will endorse, those endorsements have been going to Bernie Sanders. If you look at unions where it's sort of decided by union leadership, and there's not really as much of a say from the membership, those endorsements have been going to Hillary Clinton. So that, I think, brings up an interesting question. How much will those union endorsements mean if the sort of rank and file feel Bernie Sanders is speaking for their values as workers more than Hillary Clinton? You know, just because their union endorsed Hillary Clinton, will they toe the line and support her in a primary? Or is there potentially going to be a split here? I think that's an, an interesting question for me as an outsider, looking in on the Democratic Party and watching um, to see how that plays out.
2: Well, I listened to a really interesting podcast from the Huffington Post. They, they're they interviewing people who have lost. So, they, so far, they've interviewed Howard Dean and Michelle Bachman. And I listened to Howard Dean and he said, I could never transition from the angry insurgent into the candidate and nobody wants to elect the angry insurgent. And I think that's problems that both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders have. You have to be able to pivot. And I think Barack Obama, he never angry sort of pivoted well from this outsider into the official candidate. And I'm just not sure either of those people can do that.
0: This is also a time, remember where people are angrier than perhaps Mm -hmm. they have been in the past. So in the 2004 election, People were still kind of they were looking for a steady hand to guide them. They were frustrated about the way things were going in Iraq, but were still very concerned about the specter of of Islamic terrorism. And so, you know, in in that election, Howard Dean's sort of angry populism maybe just wasn't right for that moment. Um, Mm -hmm. And Barack Obama was certainly never, you know, he was sort of this. In some ways, a cheerful warrior. I know my <laughs> fellow Republicans might might challenge pieces of that assertion, but you know he always had this kind of hope and change and optimistic message. Bernie Sanders, at the moment, and Donald Trump, being angry, being outsiders, are finding that in some ways, you know, we would we would have said that being a socialist or holding the positions that Donald Trump has on things like calling all Mexicans rapists and things like that. I mean, these would <laughs> qualify candidates in any other election. I think it's so
2: generous you describe that as a position. <laughs> uh, well,
0: I, I don't even know what it is. It's hard to But, but you see, like things that would just be completely out of bounds or that voters would be like, oh, I don't know about that in previous years. They seem to be completely fine with because they're so frustrated with the status quo and with what they think of as the establishment that hasn't been working that it's sort of like 52 card pickup. Let's just throw all the cards in the air and like see what happens. Because it can't be worse than than what's happening right now. So something that's confusing me about Bernie Sanders,
3: he's doing so well with young people as the angry candidate. And I don't think of millennial voters as angry, typically, you know, and and I just think it kind of turns a lot of my assumptions about different demographics on his on its head that, that Bernie Sanders is winning over young people?
0: Well, I think it's, it's an anger that feels like it's anger on their behalf in a way, that he's channeling, he's taking issues like student loans where – Many millennials are very frustrated with what they feel like is, you know, a higher education system that's charging them too much and delivering them too little. And so Bernie Sanders stands up and says, I've got a solution. Now, his solution may be free college for all with sort of questionable how do we pay for it, with a big question about how we pay for it, Um, but – I think that even though millennials are – millennials are sort of both a very cynical and very optimistic generation. They're very distrustful of big institutions and frustrated with the deal their generation has been handed, but at the same time are pretty optimistic about their own chances for fixing things. Like they don't trust that the system will fix itself, but they have an awful lot of confidence in themselves and their own generation to fix things. So even though Bernie Sanders, certainly not of the millennial generation, kind of represents both sides of that coin. It's very frustrated with the status quo, very frustrated with the present, but saying, I've got a new path forward. Now, where I think Bernie Sanders will falter is in that how do you pay for it question, because millennials are very concerned about the national debt. They're very concerned about the amount of spending that the government does. And for the most part, you know, sort of understand that even if you raise a bunch of taxes today, I mean, those are taxes that are going to come back and, and potentially hurt them in the long run. So I think that's a thing that Bernie Sanders will have to navigate if he winds up being the Democratic nominee. That, you know, right now his appeal is very strong among young left leaning voters as compared to Hillary Clinton. That that contrast is very clear in the minds of a lot of millennials. But if it were Bernie Sanders versus say a Marco Rubio, I do think that sort of throws the millennial generation up in the air um, and and gives Republicans a, a good chance at trying to grab it. How is it that this
3: this older white guy, Bernie Sanders, seems more transformative to millennials than the first female president? I mean, this is something Sarah is so passionate about. We've talked a lot about on our show and and I am having a hard time wrapping my brain around that.
0: Here's a, a fascinating anecdote that I picked up on in some focus groups a couple of months ago, and I talked to a reporter about it. And a few weeks later, he had quotes from other democratic strateg- from democratic strategists saying that they had found the same thing, which is, I, I've done I've focus groups of women where I say, "Look, how important is it to you that voting for Hillary Clinton would mean putting the first woman in the White House?" And I find that older women tend to be pretty excited about it, or more willing to say. You know what? It's time. I want to see a female president. I've you know, I've watched these these fights for women's rights. I, I want to I would give her a couple bonus points, not a ton. She needs to win on her merits. She needs to win on the issues. But I, I would be glad to see it for younger women. They go, you know what? I'm going to see a female president in my lifetime. That's not in doubt. So it doesn't have to be Hillary Clinton. So I'm going to vote for the candidate that I like best. I'm not going to take this into consideration. Yes, I'd like to see a female president, but I, I'm, I have no doubt that it's going to happen in my lifetime. And so that's like a really fascinating dynamic that in a way – young women feel that like feminism has won so many battles that it's, it's just without a doubt that at some point in the next 50 years, we will have a female president. So we don't have to break that glass ceiling right now with a candidate that we may or may not be in love with because we'll get there eventually. So that it's, it's a very interesting dynamic, the diff like the generational difference actually in don't, how I, these women have I'm used sorry,
2: this. I actually don't find that that surprising, you know, what I've always found and learned and kind of heard is that women grow more radical as they age. And I've definitely seen that in my own life. So I think that that is, it fits with that sort of framework that I've always heard that as women grow more, as they grow older, they grow more radical and they feel as opposed to, and I don't know if it's necessarily like, Oh, I just hope, I think, I believe things. I think that's an interesting kind of twist is that I eventually think I'll see a female president. And maybe it's because we've just had so many female candidates and nominees recently. But I do think that fits with what I've always heard about women as they age with regards to feminism, for sure. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle and that steamy bee But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's gonna be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked to me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, hel pcom slash Pantsuit. The second
2: most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials like this premium European linen dress that's gonna get us all through the heat. Wherever we're traveling, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with Top Factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt. In Japan, they like a loose, flowy look over there. To to battle the heat I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt pack your bags with high quality essentials from quince go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns that's q-u-i-n-c-e.com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash pantsuit
0: interesting interesting yeah I, I think that that's I think that's a piece of it. And then to your point about, you know, Bernie Sanders being kind of an old white guy, how is he appealing to young people? Um, I always go back to the example of Ron Paul as another Mm. old, cranky white guy. I mean, nothing about Ron Paul really exudes like the hippest, coolest guy on the block. And yet he was able to win young voters in all of these contests in the Republican primary just four years ago. Um, because he sounds authentic. You mm-hmm. don't doubt for a second that Ron Paul believes everything he's saying. And I think there were a lot of millennials who were like, look, I'd rather vote for someone who I agree with 50 percent of the time. But I know what their position is 100 percent than someone who sounds like they say things that I would agree with 80 percent of the time. But I don't actually believe that they believe anything that they're saying. That's a gamble that a lot of millennials are willing to make. And so someone like Bernie Sanders, even if you go, yeah, I think, you know, I'm not a socialist and I don't think money grows on trees, but you know what? He's at least believes what he's saying and he's fighting for people like me. And I give him credit because he doesn't sound like a typical politician. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Well,
3: speaking of authenticity, um, I was watching the circus on Showtime last night, which I am crazy about. And they were doing this feature on the sort of the four establishment candidates, although I'm, I'm really sick of that language. But Rubio, Paul, no, Rubio, Bush, Christie, and Kasich. And, and talking about those four guys as a prisoner's dilemma, right? They should all get together and pick one to go after Trump, but none of them will do that. And so by going at it alone, they're, kind of handing things over to Trump, or at least that's the premise. So Sarah sent me a text message this morning, or I guess it was last night, but I had gone to bed, saying <laughs> um, <laughs> saying that this is such a man thing, this prisoner's dilemma. And I wondered if you could say more about that, Sarah, and then we could get Kristen's reaction.
2: Yeah, I just, when they were sitting with, they were sitting down with Kasich and his campaign manager, and they basically pitched this, okay, look, this is the prisoner's dilemma. Everybody's going to be hurt because you guys won't get together and pick one person to go up against Trump and or Cruz. And the campaign manager was like, oh, that's, no, you don't know. We never even thought of that. We wouldn't even consider that. Like, that's not how you campaign. And I just wanted to be, and I just thought as, you know, a female, I would never think like that. I would think, well, I'm here because I want to do what's best for the party and best for the country, not because I want to win. You know, (laughs) like, I just felt like that was such a, Like such a – I mean, maybe I'm being a little sexist, but I just felt like it was such a male perspective of, no, the point is to win at all costs, not to actually do what's best. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, you're going to hand it right over to them.
0: You guys need to get together. Come on. I have a slightly different take. So I think that part of why this prisoner's dilemma is unfolding and why so many of them are saying, no, I'm not going to get out, is is because of the way – So many of these contests are not going to reward winner take all delegates that there's a chance for someone like a Kasich or whomever to kind of hang around and especially given the, the way that like some of these blue states actually reward a significant amount of delegates considering how many Republicans actually live in the state. And so, you know, you could be a John Kasich and actually mop up a number of delegates and then figure, you know, once we get to a convention, You know, if we have this prisoner's dilemma still going on, we can maybe figure it out then. But while I, too, would love to see a non-Trump, non-Ted Cruz alternative emerge and have a lot of support, I don't actually think that it's just arrogance that's keeping them in the race. I think genuinely each of them thinks I'm I'm better than these other, quote unquote, you know, establishment people that if you you know, if you're not. Chris Christie, you look at him and you say, well, gosh, he's got to deal with all this bridge stuff. He hugged Obama. There's no (laughs) way he's going to excite the base like he can't be our nominee because he couldn't beat Hillary. And you can look at Jeb Bush and you can say, well, Jeb has, you know, been kind of disappointing this election. And I I put my cards on the table and say, I really like Jeb Bush. But I mean, you can you can look at Jeb and say voters aren't going to turn out for another Jeb. For another Bush, you know, so we're going to lose the general election if he's the nominee. You can look at Marco Rubio and say, look, he's so young, he's inexperienced, he's going to have all of the problems that Obama had. Are voters really going to feel comfortable if it's him versus Hillary Clinton turning the keys over to him when he seems so young and inexperienced in a time where voters are really scared of what's going on in the world? Or you look at Kasich and you say, well, John Kasich, you know, he's he accepted Medicaid expansion in his state. He's not the most eloquent guy. Is this really the guy who's going to excite and expand the base? Sure, he'll win Iowa or p- pardon me, Ohio, but you know, is he really the future of the GOP? If you're any of those four men that you mentioned, you can look at the other three and say, They are not the one to lead the party into the future. I'm the one that's going to lead the party into the future. So if I just keep fighting, eventually these voters are going to hear my message. And frankly, no votes have been cast yet. So I don't blame them for hanging in until at least New Hampshire. I think it's after New Hampshire. Whoever comes in fourth or fifth really needs to reevaluate. Okay, what am I doing here and figure out if they want to throw their support behind someone else. But the other problem is in order to emerge as that last man standing in that, you know, sort of four man firing squad they've all been turning their own super PAC funds against each other. So you've had the Bush super PAC spending a ton of money to sort of bury Marco Rubio. And you had Marco Rubio run these ads against Chris Christie about how Chris Christie loves Common Core and he believes in climate change and all this stuff. And so they are all focused on emerging as that last man standing. I don't blame them for at least waiting to see when votes are cast in New Hampshire who is actually the strongest. Can we talk about
3: Jeb for a second? Because I really like Jeb, too. Have you hit on any... I mean, I thought what you said about Hillary Clinton was so poignant. Have you hit on anything like that that just gets to why Jeb isn't getting traction?
0: I I have a theory for why Jeb isn't getting traction, and it's that he entered the primary playing defense from day one. Mm. He was instantaneously focused on I have to prove that I'm a conservative because no one will believe me because they all think I'm the squishy moderate now because I've come out on Common Core and I've come out on immigration. So I've got to prove that I'm a conservative. And so to do that, I'm going to talk nonstop about what I did as the conservative governor of Florida. So we spent all this time talking about the past, all this time talking about I was Vito Corleone. I did all this conservative stuff when I was governor. Trust me, I'm a conservative. And what he missed is that for voters who care about ideological purity, that was never going to be his constituency anyways. What he needed to do was to be the candidate of the future. He spent so much time talking about things that he did while he was governor 10 or more years ago that I don't think he focused enough on what's America going to look like 10 years from now if you do put another Bush in the White House. And and it's frustrated me so much because that's, his strength. His strength is being this forward-looking guy. And instead, you know, the super PAC focused on, we're gonna do this documentary about what Jeb was like as governor. We're gonna run all these ads about when Jeb was governor. We're gonna put out an ad where we interview people who worked in state government in Florida and all of these people who were his campaign consultants and staffers back when he was governor, and they're gonna talk about what a great guy he is. And that's the past. And Jeb's not a guy of the past. He's supposed to be a guy of the future. And I think that more than anything has been what's frustrated me. And then when he made this pivot to fight Trump, his attack on Trump has also not been an attack that plays to Jeb's strength. He's been attacking Trump as, well, Trump's not a true conservative and Trump's kind of a jerk. And the harsh reality is that voters know Trump is a jerk and they don't care. They think he's their jerk. They think he's a jerk fighting for them And they know that he's not a true conservative. Again, that's not his base of support. Those voters go to Ted Cruz. They support him because they think he's a strong guy. So not only has Jeb not had a strategy that I think plays to his strength, when he made this pivot to fight Trump, he's not attacking Trump's core strength. And so watching Jeb sort of fail to gain traction has been breaking my heart because I really believed in my heart that he's the guy that was going to, you know, turn things around and appeal to young voters and appeal to Hispanic voters and really fix things and put the party on the right track. And it's it is just he has not pursued a strategy that has put him in a position to do that.
3: Well, that's consistent with kind of what I've been saying for a while, which is I wish, I wish Jeb would start over with kind of a new staff because I feel like he has all these fantastic political minds and it's just too much it is so managed him that we're not getting a real sense of him but so we love the squishy middle on the show (laughs) (laughs) I wish somebody would just own the squishy middle and we always take a second um, before we kind of transition to talking about the selfie vote we always take a second to compliment someone from the other side because we feel like not enough of that is happening in the world so Sarah do you want to start us off
2: I will. I'll start. So I will. It's a good transition because I'm going to use some of the things I saw in the circus last night. I watched both episode one and two and um, learned saw saw several of the Republican candidates, Christie, Kasich, Bush and Rubio more as um, real people and less, you know, sort of the bombast they portray in the debates. And I thought that uh, John Kasich was sort of really likable. He had all these really dumb jokes. He was like really dumb jokes, but very um, kind of endearing and very optimistic. Like I I felt like he seemed more likable and hopeful and optimistic than he has in the debates and maybe just because he's always trying to get time. But just watching him kind of campaign across New Hampshire, I found him just really like a very nice, appealing guy how normal does his family seem Yeah, to? totally. And the way he was like <laughs> picking on his teenage daughters, loved it.
3: Well, I will compliment Joe Lieberman, who I think is like a quintessential choice. And I can't believe I haven't done this already. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he is working with one of my absolute favorites, John Huntsman on No Labels, They're co-chairs. And I've talked about No Labels before. Um, they're this kind of initiative to say, hey, let's just on a bipartisan basis, focus on what matters. And they're advocating this national strategic agenda that includes 25 million new jobs over the next 10 years, sustainable Social Security and Medicare, balancing of the federal budget and energy security. And I just think, like, who can't get behind these ideas? And I love that Joe Lieberman has set aside... Partisanship along with John Huntsman to do this. And I do think he kind of makes me like wistful about the Senate. When you look at people like Ted Cruz, Mm -hmm. you think where are the Joe Liebermans? And mm-hmm. and I think he's someone who... They're all
2: retiring. Who, They're dropping like flies, those It's mods.
3: amazing. And it's kind of it's sad that that seems more futuristic than some of what's happening in the present. But anyway, Joe Lieberman is my choice. Kristen, do you want to participate in this exercise with us? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um,
0: so as you guys know, I do a podcast as well. That's a bipartisan show. It's with uh, my co-host is Margie O'Meara. She's a Democratic pollster. She works at a nonpartisan firm, but... You know, has been working in Democratic politics for a while. Uh, so I, I adore her. But I also have to give a shout out to her husband, Julian Mulvey, who is a Democratic media consultant who does TV ads for Bernie Sanders. And as you may have seen this past week, Bernie Sanders just rolled out this totally blockbuster ad that uses Simon and Garfunkel. America. Um Yeah, it's this really, you know, we talked about Bernie Sanders kind of being this angry candidate, but, you know, it was sort of an attempt to capture that Obama optimism. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're coming, they're looking for America. um, And it's just this it's just this nice little ad. And so uh, I know Margie's very proud of of Julian's work on that. But it's that ad has sort of been the talk of the town the last week. So good for him um, for making an ad that sort of, you know, it's celebrated, People coming out to rallies and participating in the process, rather than any partisan message, and I, I just I liked it.
3: Yeah, I thought the music choice on that was so brilliant because it makes Bernie almost like retro cool. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a, he
0: he like he's leaning into the stereotype of himself and just owning it. And and I don't think like typically if you played like older music in a campaign ad, be like, oh, are they turning off young voters? But I actually think. There's are so many efforts to try to reach millennials that fall so flat. Like, if you yeah. put a bunch of, like, EDM music, you know, like, in, in an ad or, like, hip-hop, if it doesn't seem authentic, then it's going to be like, ugh, eye roll, whatever. But, I mean, there was no doubt that that song was, like, pure Bernie Sanders. It's also so. just a great
2: song. It's my husband's favorite song of all time. So. Oh, yeah. So, in the suit, we're going to move on to talk about Kristen's fabulous book.
3: So, Kristen, can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to write The Selfie Vote?
0: I wrote The Selfie Vote because back in 2008, I first started realizing that being Republican and young made me weird. Uh, That My whole (laughs) life up until that point, I had been... Uh, really focused on politics, did the high school debate team, did all the student government politics in college, you know, was really into it, and that was the stuff that made me weird. But being Republican in and of itself was not bizarre. And all of a sudden around that 2008 election, I started getting this sense that friends of mine who had never cared about politics before cared and thought that How can you be young and Republican? That doesn't make any sense. So I did my master's thesis in grad school on the vanishing young Republicans. And when I was doing that research, what I found really terrified me as a young Republican. There was a lot of conventional wisdom that, well, you know, people start off liberal when they're young and they get more conservative as they get older. So Republicans don't need to worry about this. Young voters always break for Democrats. And I found out in my research that that wasn't true. That that's like a comforting piece of conventional wisdom that we tell ourselves to make ourselves sleep at night, but it's not actually backed up by data. And that if Republicans didn't really do a a U-turn and fix their standing with young voters in the next election or two, they were going to see some serious headwinds for decades to come. Uh so I wrote this thesis and nobody cared. Um I was in my mid twenties, you know, trying to like get the word out. I wrote a post at what was then pollster.com. It has now become Huffington Post Polster, all about what I had found in my research. And, you know, a couple hundred people read it and that was sort of <laughs> the end of it. And then the twenty twelve election rolled around and Republicans lost young voters again by 23 points. And finally, people started saying, "Okay, we've lost young voters by historic margins, bigger than any margin since the advent of modern exit polling. We got to fix this. This is a problem. And so as a result, you know, we had the I'm not supposed to call it the autopsy, but the autopsy report the (laughs) post-election report in, in 2013 saying why have Republicans lost? What do we need to do to fix things? And, of course, that report came out and said, you know, we need to do better with young voters. We need to do better with women, particularly young women, particularly single women. Um, we need to do better with millennials. And the report had, you know, a handful of little odds and ends. Oh, we need to do better celebrity outreach. We need to put more ads on Univision, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I still was worried that it wasn't enough. So the college Republicans approached me and we did a course of research and put out a hundred page report on what we thought Republicans needed to do if they wanted to win young voters, sort of like a field guide for any Republican candidate who was confused about what should I be doing to win young voters. And that sort of, you know, one thing led to another. That report, you know, got me to I got to start doing some television appearances to talk about it. I got a literary agent. I got a book deal and so on and so forth. Um, and so the selfie vote is really me trying to tell the story to my party about why young voters matter, but it's not just a book about politics. It also tells about what are the lifestyle, technological and consumer choices that young people are making that affect business, that affect nonprofits, that if you know, if you're an employer trying to hire millennials, there's stuff in my book that will help you understand what they're looking for. If you are a nonprofit trying to engage millennials in your cause, my book will have something that will tell you what makes millennials excited about a cause. I mean, it, it goes beyond politics, but politics is the lens through which I try to study the values and attitudes of this generation in hopes that both parties will do a better job engaging them, um, the Democrats won't take them for granted and my party won't write them off. And And that's sort of how the selfie vote came to be.
3: So I so relate to this idea of being Republican is weird. Because <laughs> in the couple of months that we've been doing our show, a lot of our feedback has in it some element of like, gosh, Beth seems like a, a kind of nice, normal human being. And I've never met a Republican like that. And so if you use the me... word
2: unicorn, it's happened. Yes.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and and it just makes me realize I don't think until we started doing this, I fully appreciated how tarnished the Republican brand is. And as I was reading the selfie vote, I was thinking, uh, Kristen, about how this is a great blueprint for candidates. And I think a lot of candidates are trying to follow it. Maybe some, especially people like Paul Ryan. You know, I thought Nikki Haley's State of the Union response was great and had elements of what you're talking about in it. What do we do about the conservative media and its influence on the brand? I mean, I kind of want to send this book to uh, lots of people in the conservative media and say, can can you help us out here?
0: (laughs) So I I split conservative media into a few different groups. And, And interestingly, this presidential election, I think, has thrown into sharp relief where some of these fault lines are. So, you know, technically, National Review and Rush Limbaugh are both conservative media and for folks who are kind of on the outside of the tent sometimes looking in you know it's easy to lump you know all conservative pundits and conservative news outlets and stuff together and this election is really showing that's not the case on the one hand you have the rush limbaugh's and ann coulter's of the world what i kind of call the entertainment wing of the party who is really focused on donald trump maybe kind of to a lesser extent ted cruz but but really focused on trump at the moment And their incentive is not to win elections. Their incentive is not even, in my opinion, to advance conservative ideas. Their incentive is to get eyeballs, get ratings, cause controversy, make money. And, you know, that's almost better served by being the party that's in the minority. So, you know, sending the selfie vote to a Rush Limbaugh or an Ann Coulter isn't going to change their mind because their goal is not to win over young voters. I mean, their incentive is to sell books and get listeners there. The the two camps that I do think would be well served by the book are the sort of conservative intellectuals like the think tanks, the the national reviews, the weekly standards, um, the national or the, the, the national affairs, you know, those those publications and thinkers, I think would benefit from the selfie vote, because so often they write kind of inside a bubble where their goal is unfortunately not to persuade anyone that too often, you know, they'll write really fascinating white papers or, you know, really intellectual columns about the importance of conservative ideas. They'll come up with new ways to solve problems and it'll all kind of stay inside this bubble and they won't have any way to take their message out to reach people who would go, yeah, that sounds like a good way to rethink how we do higher education and student loans hey, that actually sounds like a a policy that would help me start a small business. That sounds really cool. I'd like more of that. So I think the sort of conservative intelligentsia would benefit from the selfie vote because they are really, you know, they may come up with a lot of smart stuff, but are really inept at translating that into, hey, what does this mean for young people? And then the the third group is the Republican, again, establishment. I know, I'm sorry. I know you hate that term. We got to (laughs) come up with something else. But maybe the party apparatus is, is maybe a better way of mm. putting it. Is it like sort of uh, people who could, Republican is the label that matters more than conservative. they the, the first, you know, the conservative intelligentsia. They care more about the ideology than the party. But then there are activists who sort of care more about the party than the ideology. They're they're there to wear their team, our jersey. And I think their problem is the Republican brand. Conservative intelligentsia doesn't care about the Republican brand. They care about limited government markets. But the Republican brand has also been really tarnished. The reason why people like 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 you and I will get this. Hey, why are you such a unicorn? Uh, you know, you, you're such a weird aberration. How can you be Republican? Is that the brand has been tarnished and associated with the conservative entertainer wing? hey, how can you be a Republican and not be racist or sexist or homophobic or what have you? Um, and so the, the GOP itself, I think, needs to learn, one, how to fix its brand, and two, how to better leverage data and technology to reach younger voters where they have failed in the past. So of those three camps, I don't think there's much that the conservative entertainment wing is going to learn from me, and I don't think that they want to. I think that's just a whole different universe. But I think that the intelligentsia and the party apparatus do have a lot to learn from the selfie boat.
2: Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin. So it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children, as young as possible, to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze Sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go, here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved, and this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit.
1: Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. you heard me free croissants in every box and thirty dollars off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout.
2: I definitely agree with the think tank. If you could get Arthur C. Brooks in front of I am totally into him and things he says, and I'm a Democrat, so if you could get him in front of some more people.
0: Oh yeah, he's phenomenal. Going I, I great. Selfie vote as a package with the conservative heart, and just be like, if you don't, if you don't get what I'm saying, or you don't care about young voters, at least read his book and start advancing the ideas he talks about because they are like, they are right in line with each other. And we actually had the same editor; we our books came out one week apart from the same publishing. Oh, that's house.
2: hilarious. Well, um, and
0: here's, here's my question for
2: you, though: the part where in your book, I, you know, I really enjoyed it. It was a very interesting. Um, experiment sort of to read it as a Democrat, I was nodding a lot. There were so many things I agreed with, and really not much that I was like, mm, i don't know about that, but when I thought where you really got it, where you really were like, Yeah, and I felt like as a Democrat, yeah that 's why i don 't identify as a Republican. when you said the trouble with Republicans on this issue is that while we value opportunity, we don 't see all see where opportunity is lacking in America in a poll done by the nonpartisan public religion research institute, only a third of Republicans said. One of the big problems in the country is that we don't give everyone an equal chance in life. And you say the goal should not be that we all end up in the same place, but rather that we all have a chance to make it across the finish line. And I thought that was so just got to the heart of what I feel like the difference is sometimes between Democrats and Republicans, this idea that, yeah, you know, I disagree that um, Democrats want everybody to get, a, you know, to be in the same place. But I do feel as a Democrat that I do want everyone to have the same chance. And I'm just wondering when you talk about sort of the Republican brand. I mean, how much of it is it self perpetuating, right? That's a young attitude. If you're not appealing to young people, you don't get young people into your party to shift that thinking. Then it just solidifies and hardens, turns off more young people. It's like it's it feels very. Like y'all are stuck in this sort of self-perpetuating cycle, and I'm not really sure. You know, I loved a lot of your ideas, but I feel like you need something really big. You need like a Barack Obama candidate to say to to represent this new this new sort of age of Republicanism or this new idea about conservative values. I feel like the you know, like I said, it's like these ideas turn off young people, so you don't get young people in the party to change the ideas.
0: Yeah, it's a, that's, I, I am very big on trying to break the cycle that you just outlined there, that we need to get more young people into the party because it will bring in fresh ideas, it will bring oxygen, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it, it will, it will make the party better and more adaptable and more understanding of the challenges that every American faces. I think where Republicans tend to run into a big problem is that I do believe that Republican elected officials want everyone to be able to maximize their opportunity. Where I think we struggle, and and it's not just on this issue, but on a lot of issues, is on what's the government's role in that? How Hmm. much should the government play a role in making sure that everyone can get across the finish line? And I think when Republicans talk about, hey, we need to be restrained on that front, very often it comes across as we don't care if you make it across the finish line at all. Totally. Um, and I think that's in in a lot of different ways. You know, we let ourselves get branded as kind of anarchists in some ways that, you know, instead of talking about, hey, maybe government's not the best way to solve this problem. It comes across as we don't care that this is a problem.
1: Right.
0: Um, and we don't think that government should be involved at all, and sometimes it opens us up to attacks that I think are unfair. But I mean, hey, we've we've opened ourselves up to them. When you know, right now I'm I'm in I'm snowed in in my house here in D.C. and the roads need plowed. And you know, of course, every so often I'll have a friend of mine on the left will be like, "Oh, where's your where's your limited government now? When you want the big <laughs> government <to> come out <laughs> your streets." So I think sometimes we on the right can can allow ourselves to be caught up in this like we want limited government as the end in and of itself rather than a means to an end that we view limited government as the best way to make sure everybody gets opportunity rather than we want limited government even though it may mean we're screwing some people over, because that's I mean, that's not a very uplifting message. And I think you're right that we need a candidate at the top of the ticket who's going to embody this. There is a huge debate on the right right now about what the future of conservatism should look like. Um, Should it be this kind of forward looking, let's expand our appeal to young people, to minorities, et cetera, vision or do we need to kind of go back to the drawing board? Do we need to go be even more conservative? Do we need to rally our base more because an unenthusiastic base is why Mitt Romney didn't win? I mean, this is a debate that is unresolved on the right. I think the data suggests winning over young people and minorities is the way to go. But there are a lot of smart people that are take the other side of this argument. And until we have a president in the White House who is a Republican – I don't think this debate will be resolved because everybody loves a winner. If somebody running one of these two strategies wins the White House, then everybody will fall in line and go, oh, that's the way forward. Mm-hmm. And so if somebody wins the White House with this optimistic message, with this expanded tent of who we talk to – I think the rest of the party will sort of come around to the idea, oh, that this this is right, this is great, yay, I've been championing this all along. But until we have somebody at the top of the ticket or in the White House who embodies this, I think it's going to be very hard to change the brand of our party.
2: Well, and I think what people from both sides, like you said, this book applies so much so far beyond Republicans. And I really think what you're getting at and what – you know, Republicans aren't the only ones that double down and say – and so that it comes across as – you know, no government, no matter who gets screwed, you know, sometimes Democrats come across as all government, no matter how, how much it costs or how harmful or how broken the system is. And nobody really feels like that. Right. And I think what the lesson from your book is, you know, stop doubling down to make the contrast starker. People, millennials are okay with a little gray. I feel like millennials are okay if you're honest and say they like authenticity more than they like this black and white choice. Like, I don't think that serves either party to sort of double down and go to the sides and no, this is the stark contrast between our two parties. Or maybe not. Or maybe we all want a way forward. I, I think that's the message that appeals to millennial and the party that figures that out the soonest, you know, is going to see the benefit.
3: Well, it seems like both parties are in danger if uh, until they get the idea that it's problem solving, not ideology.
2: Mm-hmm. I love that part where you said that that's what millennials want is. They just want the problem solved. I mean, I I identify as a millennial. I was born in 1981. I'm not, I mean, I'm old. I have three
0: kids, but. You technically count. Yeah, I count count. in there.
2: (laughs) I I, I really do. I identified with so much of what you were saying. The open data and the transparency and just solve the problem. All of that really appealed to me.
3: So Kristen, if you were counseling the eventual Republican nominee to focus on just one aspect of what you've written about in terms of how you reach out to young voters. You know, you talk about commerce and education and inclusion and the way to use data. If, if you were talking to the GOP nominee today, what would you say this this is your top priority?
0: I would tell them to focus. Well, I think the first priority I would tell them to do is focus on the issue of education, because I think education is one of those issues that blurs party lines somewhat, that gives you an opportunity to talk to voters who are outside the Republican coalition, um, and it lets you talk about the need to kind of disrupt a system that really hasn't been working very well. You know, our public schools in America are not great. Our higher education system, tuition keeps going up and up and up, and there's sort of no end in sight, and this is causing people a lot of anxiety because education is the way that you lift yourself out of poverty. Education is the way that you create the intellectual capital to thrive, to to learn what you need to learn to start a business, to, to thrive in the workplace, to make a living for your family. I mean, so many of the other anxieties that people face can all be rooted back in do I have the skills and knowledge to thrive in this economy? Do I do I have the education that's going to open the doors for me? Do my kids have the education that's going to open the doors for me? And so in consistently in survey after survey, education is one of the top issues for voters under the age of 40, either because they themselves are in college or because they have young children who are entering the public school system and they want to know that it's going to be good for them. And so I just encourage any Republican candidate to make sure that that's a piece of what you're talking about. This was a piece of George W. Bush's agenda when he ran for president in 2000, when he was a domestic issues candidate, not a foreign affairs candidate, and he was going to be the education president. And that was a message that allowed him to both keep a hold on his conservative base and talk about disrupting where government has failed, But you're also talking about opportunity and things that resonate across the ideological spectrum. Um, So that, for me, is sort of the biggest win that lets you reach young voters and sort of check off a lot of those boxes of things that Republicans need to do to win the White House.
2: Why is no one talking about that, though? I feel like that's getting so little traction.
0: Well, there are two candidates who are talking about it a little bit. So Jeb Bush talks about it, but again, it's largely in the context of look at all this great stuff I did when I was governor of Florida. Mm-hmm. It has not yet really been, uh, I mean, he, he's put out an education plan. Um, but, of course, it's been so drowned out by the sort of circus of this election that, you know, nobody's really talked about it that much. And then Marco Rubio, on the other hand, has been very vocal about higher education. He talks a lot about his student loans. Oh, yeah, he yeah, um, exactly You know, that. we need to have new ways. To finance higher education, we need to, you know, beef up vocational training. Um, on the left, you have both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, who have talked about um, college. You have both of them that have put out plans for what they would do. Um, coming from the Republican side, I think both of their plans cost an awful lot of money. And I always ask the "How are you going to pay for that?" question, but <laughs> you know, it, it has been an issue that's been brought up. But it's it's at least on the Republican side, not an issue that drives people in the primary. So it it has sort of been muffled, and I suspect it's not going to be the sort of thing that a candidate really talks about in a big way until the general.
3: Well, I hope that the eventual Republican nominee takes your advice, because I, I have just been pounding my head against the wall that we're not hearing more about education on the Republican side. I do think it's a huge Um, so far missed opportunity, but Mm -hmm. hopefully we get there. Well, Kristen, if you will spend just a couple more moments with us for our last segment, the heels, we like to talk about something a little bit more personal at the end of the show. Sure.
2: So today in the heels, we were going to share our favorite internet distractions, A popular topic, no matter what party you belong to. We can all agree the internet is a great distractor.
3: Absolutely. So, um, Kristen, do you want
0: to get us started? Sure. So, my internet distraction is uh, I love looking at what European royals are wearing, and (laughs) I get that nowhere better than on Go Fug Yourself. Love it. it's my favorite style blog because it's like red carpet fashion and royals and pictures of Taylor Swift walking down the street in Manhattan looking like very cool and casual in like six inch heels. <laughs> and the, the people who write the site, I love their voice. And they're also love,
2: hilarious.
0: They're so funny. And they I feel like they have fashion sense that lines up with what I like. Like so often I will read style blogs. And people will be wearing this just totally weird stuff, and they'll be like, "Oh, that's <laughs> so trendy." And I feel like I'm watching Zoolander, where they're like, "Oh, darling, it's so fabulous." And I'm like, "No, I don't get it." You know, whereas on uh, on GoFug Yourself, I feel like the voice of the folks there—they're always like, "Are you wearing good lipstick? Do you have a good bracelet on? Are you wearing shoes that a- that add adequate personality to your outfit?" And that's mm-hmm. sort of like, "Are your the pants pinned appropriately?
2: They're really big on." Pants hemming, which I agree have with. You,
0: have you steamed your outfit or does it look like you need to be ironed? Like things <laughs> like that that I'm like, yes, we can all agree these are elements of good style. And they always have this Royals Roundup section where it's like 50 pictures of – it's not just Duchess Kate or, you know, the, the Royals that you typically hear about, but like – you know, third or fourth tier European royals from like small countries or like they're not the one that's in line for the throne. So you would normally never hear about them. But here they had to go to this ribbon cutting and they wore this fabulous outfit. Like that's the stuff that I can just look at for way too long on the Internet. Well, I have been reading
2: Go Fug Yourself since law school. So 10 plus years. Big, huge fan. And I highly recommend their book. I know, Kristen, you said you haven't read it yet. The Royal We, which is basically royal fan fiction. It's like Kate and William fan fiction. It's amazing. (laughs) It is. Oh, only better part is that it's Kate and William fan fiction. So like they meet sort of the same way and all this, except for she's American, which is even better. It's really good. And their young adult novels are actually really good, too. Big fan. I will have to check them out. Big fan. Big fan of them. You go. Oh Beth, you want to go next?
3: Oh, sure. So um, mine is a little bit cheating and I've been debating about whether this is right, but I think it would be even more cheating to not just say what's true. So um, <laughs> since, since we have young children, I don't watch a lot of late night TV. And so when I want to just like let some hours go by, um, I pull up. Like lip sync battle and celebs reading mean tweets. I can watch that stuff for days, especially lip sync battle. And I have to say that, you know, I've tried out this this whole lip sync battle show that's happening right now. I love Chrissy Teigen and I was really hopeful that does not do it for me. I need just like the, the Jimmy Fallon clips, a couple of minutes. I could watch Emma Stone do all I do is win like a hundred <laughs> times in the course of an afternoon. I think it's amazing. So but you
2: did see Beyonce uh, show up at Channing Tatum's, right?
3: Yes, and I mean, okay. It, oh, I, I just that. thought that was so weird. I don't know. It feels <laughs> a little bit overdone to me, but I but I love I love what Jimmy Fallon does, and I love mean tweets. I think it is just the best idea.
2: So, um, I guess I, I in the spirit of honesty, I will also disclose that I do a little bit of um, snarky hate following on a couple parenting <laughs> blogs. If I'm being real honest. Where, and it's sort of what you're talking about, like some of them, the, a couple of them live in New York City, and they share things that I roll my eyes at so hard, it's amazing they don't get stuck. So, you know, it's just very stylized. No kid is ever wearing a cartoon character or a Disney character. And, you know, everybody drives little, little um, what is that foreign car, the little red car that they always put the Christmas tree on top of. Like it's just stuff like that. It's totally impractical for having kids and everybody is, you know, wearing scarves and drinking beautiful lattes. And it's just so ridiculous, but I can't help it. I just want to I just love to to watch what they're the ridiculous things they are sharing and be snarky from the privacy of my own home.
0: I, I am so my husband and I don't have kids, and I'm so apprehensive about like one day having kids and like having this internet pressure to be <laughs> this like insanely perfect parent that like you that that like I'll feel all this pressure from my friends who are like type a and who you know like they make the perfect cupcakes all the time or you know like the, the I feel like the the internet just now has made it this like. Show off what a perfect parent you are. If it, like yeah, but it's also that's
2: why I like to roll my eyes at them. It's also heavily edited. No one actually believes their lives are like that, or they're <laughs> either that or that's their job. You know, like that's how they make money. That's this blog is their job. Yeah, if it was my job to create perfect white subway tile pantries with bottles of Perrier stacked up beautifully, then yeah, I'd do it too. But that's not my job. I've got <laughs> other things going on.
3: Well, but the pressure is real. So we just had my daughter's five year old birthday party and we kept it super simple. We did like the kids were their PJs and watched cartoons and made necklaces out of cereal and ate donuts in our basement. And I, I can go to that tell party. You, It was it was a super fun party. They paid, they played Pie Face for an hour. They had a blast. But like so many people said to me Gosh, it's just like really refreshing to see a party that's not like a multi-million dollar production. (laughs) I thought, wow, like we have so, and, and I'm into cool parties too, and I know that you are, Sarah, but it was just amazing to me that like having a simple birthday party has become almost like kitschy cool. You know what I mean?
2: (laughs) Well, and it's so silly because often when I do, um, birthday parties and I, I do, I get into it, I love it, but I do it like what my kids are, like I spend a lot of time on what they're into. I don't wrap water bottles because they don't care. You know, like mm-hmm. I try to think about what do my, and I, when I plan a birthday party with my boys, like we sit down on Pinterest and they say, oh, I like that cake. Oh, I like that favor. Like, it's not just me thinking what I think will look impressive. It's really them picking out what appeals to them. And sometimes they pick stuff that I'm like, oh, but well, hey, we do it anyway. It's their party.
3: Well, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. It was so much fun to talk with you. And thanks to all of our listeners. Um, We hope that you will continue to sign up for our emails. You can find out how it's pinned to the top of our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Follow us on Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic, No S. And until next time, keep it nuanced, y'all.